Hello, hello, and welcome back. And thanks for tuning in, you sexy beasts. With me today is someone I'm a massive fanboy of, so I'm super excited about this one. Uh, this was landed on me yesterday. Usually I like to have a bit of prep time when I've got somebody of the caliber of today's guest. So I'll be winging some of this by the seat of my pants. But um, <laughs> I'm hoping that they'll do most of the talking and I'll just sit back and, and lap it all up. But uh, if ever there was a rock and roll investigative journalist, tonight's guest would be it. Author of some of my favorite books, such as Armed Madhouse and The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, as well as being a reporter for The Guardian, The BBC and many others, a filmmaker and a longtime defender of the truth wherever he has to go to find it. I've been a fan for a long time and it is my absolute honor to welcome onto the podcast today the brilliant and the ever cool Greg Pallast. Greg, how the hell are you, my friend? Not too cool, but, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll live with it. Uh, do you want to do you want to get the, the bragging out of the way now and just let everybody know that you're you're sitting in sunny Malibu right now? Yes, I'm in Malibu. I just got out of the surf. <laughs> it's uh, I don't know what it would be in cel- in uh, Celsius, but it's uh, 88 uh, degrees Fahrenheit. So it's blazing. And so eat your fucking hearts out. <laughs> I was going to say, I think it doesn't matter what the Celsius is. I think that counts as hot as fuck. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> That's fine. You, you deserve every you deserve every ray of it, man, because you're a hardworking mofo. And um, we've got a lot of stuff to get in with, into today. I've got tons of stuff I want to ask you, but we can go wherever you want. But I thought we would start with, with the biggie, the main event of the moment. Um, let's start with that and then see where it goes from there, if, if you're cool with that. So obviously what I'm talking about is the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, I, I want to start, if you're cool with it, to get your take on what's happening there. And also, um, more broadly speaking, what role does this particular conflict play at the global level? Or what does it tell us about the global theatre? Well, I mean, one of the problems is, is that people on the left and right are twisting so, themselves as pretzels because they can't figure out what is the correct position for to be left or to be right. You know, um, uh, you know, where, where, you know, what do we do? I think we have to say, look, it we have a guy, a, a monster Putin. Who has decided to um, to take over and de Ukraineize Ukraine. Now, what do I mean by that? Because I've been reading some of the stuff that's been translated for me from the Russian. Um, this goes back historically. There was a Russia was actually founded its initial capital in Kievan Rus, as it was called, was in Kiev. And uh, it's disturbed. It's disturbed uh, Russians forever that the Ukrainians do not see themselves as Russian. So there is this cultural pl- pride that's in the way that's always at the heart of every of every conflict and battle. Now it's true. I can bring talk about oil. Like it always comes back to these things, but um, and all the economic push. But underlying most evil, bloodthirsty, maniacal madness that has destroyed this planet for a couple millennia, it's called religion. Now, and um, you have to understand, Russians. And those in eastern Ukraine are overwhelmingly in the Donbass. They are orthodox, as is the rest of Ukraine. But in the east, they follow the Moscow Patriarchate, the Patriarch Kirill, whereas others in most of Ukraine follow the um, the Kiev Patriarchate. Now, 
and some uh, also follow the Greek patriarchate. Uh, don't ask me. Don't ask me what the differences are. They're all guys in funny hats. <laughs> and um, and uh, but Kirill, the Moscow patriarchate, who is the core of Putin's power, is, just like Trump, he, he may have um, um, you know diddled with uh, untold numbers of women, scammed. He's a short-fingered Bulgarian, but he used the religious right in America to get himself elected. Putin, who's not a very religious man, used the religious right of Russia to get elected with the support and backing of uh, Kirill, the patriarch, who is really pissed off because the guys in Kiev insist on wearing their own funny hats and don't bow down to him. So there's a underneath this, and there's almost no discussion of this, is this horrific religious war and it's what Freud called the vanity of small differences. You know, this mm. is why, you know, you know, uh, I was in Tibet trying to explain and I kid you not. This is like weird. I was trying to explain the Irish conflict, you know, Catholics right. and, and Protestants. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm explaining to a Tibetan monk who's completely, you know, like, well, wait, don't they like believe in this same, you know, the Jesus figure and all that? And I said, well, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but it's like, you know, a little this, little that. There's something about the Eucharist, which I don't understand either, um, that that it goes back to. And, you know, and of course, it ends up becoming economic conflict. So I'm blathering on. But I really want people to understand that religion, once again, is the poison that's been injected in back into the Ukrainian conflict. And, of course, you know, you have Putin talking about, you know, you have the irony uh, uh and the horror way of that you have both the president and by the way, the prime ministers, not only the president Zelensky is Jewish, but so is the, uh, the prime minister. Um, and so in a way they don't have a dog in the fight, but the, the dogs are on, on them now. That is so, I've, do you know what I've, that's the first I've heard of that interpretation. I, for me, I thought it was the traditional clash between the um, the East and the Western empires, and Ukraine was basically a chess piece in the middle of that power tussle. But I, I not at all appreciated that the re- religious role in that. That's the, that's the first I've heard of that. As you were talking, it's funny you mentioned Northern Ireland because as, as you were describing that, then I was thinking, yeah, is would you say that it's comparable to the situation in Northern Ireland, like a Catholics and Protestant situation? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. But the difference is, is that and and to some extent that got involved with the British Empire, et cetera. But it's but uh, you also have, um, you know, so again, um, I was just listening to uh, Amos Oz, the writer, who said the minute you mix religion with anything else. Nationalism, economy, power, you name it, ethnicity, that's when you run into mayhem and and death mm. so um so yeah so so religion is and there's always many aspects i mean i'll even get into oil you say well wait a minute ukraine doesn't have oil but the 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 politics of oil is deep in this is deep in this too but yes and there are obviously ethnic differences and, and historical differences the the um so anyway go ahead if you have any other questions I'm done. I've, I've said something useful and I don't want people to forget it. So I should just quit. 
<laughs> no, please don't. Man, I could listen to you talk for the next six hours. Honestly, the floor is yours. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you then was what role does this play globally? Does it play a role globally or yeah. is it strictly a regional thing? No, no, no. It, it is global, but uh, it's global not the way that, that the, the left and right commentators, especially in England, you know, read The Guardian. Oh, it's all because we threatened Russia with yeah. um, expansion of NATO. That's bullshit. Ukraine applied to, for NATO membership 14 years ago. It was kind of laughed out of the room. It would never happen. It's against even the NATO charter because you can't be in conflict with bordering nations. This is silly. So what is what what uh, bug just got up Putin's ass right now? Uh, that 14 years after Ukraine made a goofy run for NATO, which is not going to happen. Let's also remember, by the way, that this great threat from Ukraine and NATO that um, you know, back in, in the 90s, Ukraine actually gave Russia all of its warheads, all of its nuclear warheads in return for a guarantee from the U.S., Russia, France and Germany that they would protect Ukraine from aggression. Hmm. So you had the same obligation of NATO then, but from Russia, too. They, You know, this is the great threat that, well, if, if the country's threatening you, why are they handing you the warheads instead of shooting them at you? Obviously, that was dumb on the part of the Ukrainians to believe that either the U.S. Uh, or Germany or uh, would come to their rescue. Um, and, uh, you know, so it but it's not about NATO. I mean, obviously, the expansion NATO is what I would call diplomatic malpractice of the worst order. There was no reason for it. But now, I mean, maybe looking backwards, we should have let Ukraine into NATO. They wouldn't have tanks in uh, Mariupol right now. Yeah, yeah. But you do have you do have to recognize also. Um, so let's let's get away from the big power conflicts per se. Remember, Putin has a uh, he may be dictatorial, that is authoritarian, and he may uh, win his elections by, you know, elections for those who read Greg Palestine. That's one of my things I investigate. Well, there I don't have to do a lot of investigation in Russia. Um, he uh, um, his opponent um, a couple of elections ago, who had been his prime minister, was um, gunned down in front of the Kremlin. Interestingly, when that happened, uh, when his opponent was uh, assassinated right in front of the Kremlin, all the cameras, security cameras had been turned off at the Kremlin. They're quite extraordinary. It's like the White House or 10 Downing turned off all the security cameras. They said, oh, because they had to repair them. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, just at that moment. Good time. OK. Yeah. And then, of course, Navalny, his current opponent that was poisoned. Now he's in prison for uh, 15 years, at least, et cetera. So, you know, so. But nevertheless, Putin still has to be reelected. What I mean by that is all these, uh, the attacks on Navalny, the killings of his opponents, et cetera, are because he does have to get elected and he needs support. In other words, even a dictator has to have support of the military, uh, the, the patriarch uh, you know, of the church. He needs the support of the people. And, um, and as the economy is sliding, began to slide in Russia with the fall in oil prices. Don't forget, under COVID, oil prices completely imploded. Yeah. 43% of Russia's budget is coming from oil and oil royalties and you know uh, gas and other um, energy. 43% of their state budget. Well, so they had no state budget in 20 and 21. So by rolling the tanks, you just raised Putin 
basically earned a tremendous war bonus for his wow. economy. Mm. I mean, one thing that I just, I looked, looked up some of the uh, numbers, you know, despite the, the big shot sanctions, I know that the oligarchs can't go buy tickets to see Hamilton now. So they're really, they're really <laughs> suffering. They hit them where it hurts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, it's like, Oh no, got to go to the smaller yacht. It's like, Oh my God. And it's like, so this is a big, this is the big threat we have our so-called sanctions. And uh, but uh, I looked and Russia's um, trade balance has actually gone up in its favor because they're still selling oil. Some of it has to be discounted, moved around. So you have to send it east rather than west. And and they're discounting some of it. But still a discount from one hundred and ten dollars a barrel is a huge bonus for kicking off a conflict. Mm. And, you know, and uh, so we have to know that, you know, Putin to maintain his popularity, has to maintain the economy. You say, well, what about the body bags coming back? No, no, no. We know as long as you're successful, ask Churchill, Roosevelt, Lincoln, the number of body bags don't count. And we saw, you know, as long as you're successful, this is Putin's problem right now. He has to succeed in some way. Um, Don't forget, uh, Putin became part, he was completely unknown. We should go into how Putin rose to power, how he was chosen. But he was completely, literally unknown. He was known by less than one half percent of the public when he became prime minister on his way. To, and then uh, Yeltsin, under uh, an agreement, resigned. So this guy became president and people didn't even know who the hell he was. OK, and so but he made his bones. Then he had to run for reelection after he was rose to power when Yeltsin resigned. Um, and the way he won is that he attacked the Chechens. And if you remember, he leveled the capital of Chechnya yeah. inside Russia, just leveled it as he's doing in Mariupol, et cetera. So this is nothing new. And um, he killed something like 50,000 civilians. But he also killed 14,000 Russian soldiers. So they were, you know, so if you can imagine a very short in just a number of weeks, 14,000 uh, Russian soldiers dead and he was considered an uh you know an unstoppable hero and and won with an overwhelming percentage of the vote by being the hero who crushed the chechens and by the way once again religion is there the chechens are muslim muslim yeah and uh for the most part and um you know obviously that's one of the things so no one cared 50,000 muslims dead who cares uh but even as long as it they it was long as it was a glorious victory uh, Putin got away with it. So even the, you know, we don't know how many uh, Russian soldiers have died. The minimum 7,000, more likely 15,000. Again, but that's just, you know, what he lost in Chechnya in, in the same period of time. And and he came home a hero. He's a fucking scary guy, though, isn't he? Yes. And if, <laughs> and if you remember the famous line when George Bush met him and said, I looked into his eyes. Looks into Vlad the Impaler's eyes. Right? So I looked at his eyes and and saw a good man, a good man, a man I can trust. You know, remember when Bush said that? And it's like I'm thinking. Even then, it was like pretty clear who Putin was. And and let me go into who Putin was, if you don't mind me. I'm trying not to fill up. Go for here, it. But I, I want to. No, dude, dude, you, mate, you could talk for the next six hours. Honestly, I, I'm sitting back. I'm loving it. Go for it. Okay, okay, okay. Wait, let me let me down a little. Uh, um, inspirational juice here. <laughs> um, so what's important with, to understand about Putin 
is who put him there. Because I said, no one knew who the hell this guy was. So how did he get there? How does an unknown become suddenly, boom, uh, 99 out of 100 people don't know who this guy who is who became president? And the answer is, he was chosen by the oligarchs, that is, just the, the billionaires, particularly um, Berezovsky. And Berezovsky um, in Davos, um, went when Yeltsin went to, to Davos uh, in the 90s, um, he was facing an election against uh, um, Gennady Z- uh, Zuganyov who is the head of the newly uh, reformed Russian uh, uh, Communist Party. So the communists were going to win that election. Yeltsin was a, was a falling, literally falling down drunk. He had five heart attacks. And he was, uh, so he was a clown. And at Davos, the uh, the world leaders and corporate leaders who get together, you know, bring in their jets and, yeah. and uh, play with each other's private uh, jets (laughs) and you know um and make their deals um they were all hanging around uh the the communist party chief figuring he's going to be president you know and uh so so then the the um oligarchs pulled yeltsin aside said listen we're going to steal the election for you you're going to get reelected, but you have to agree to resign and then we're going to replace you and you've got to agree to a replacement who will be a Pinochet for Russia. Now, this plan, getting a now for those who are too young or, or otherwise uninformed, Pinochet is was the dictator who uh, overthrew the elected government of Chile, killed the communist leader um, Allende, was president, uh, murdered three thousand people, famously throwing many out of helicopters. Yeah. A right wing super fascist, but most important. He was he turned the economy. He created the first Thatcherite economy um, with a full free market Thatcherite um, theories based, uh, directed by the Chicago boys uh, who were the and their mentor was a guy, uh, economist, right wing economist, Milton Friedman. I know about this because I was one of the Chicago boys. Oh, shit. And yeah, uh, I was the only American in the group. But at the time, you'll love this. For those who don't know Greg Palace, I'm an under, you know, I do investigative reporting. and Everybody just, knows who you are, Greg. <laughs> but you know, I do one of my shticks. One of the ways I get information is I go, I'm an undercover. I do a lot of undercover work. Um, the Guardian is always shocked at the cost of doing it. They get big bills, but they sold a lot of paper. <laughs> um, and um, so I was in, I was actually undercover. I was working with the communist led labor unions of Chicago. They said, get in with Friedman. So I see what this guy's up to. So I got the whole new world order from the inside, working with Friedman and working with the Chileans and the rest. I, I kid you not. It was a hell of an education. Like a, dude, there is a whole conversation right there, man. <laughs> There's a whole conversation right, right there. Exactly. And, um, you know, so, um, so, what so Pinochet with this ultra right wing free market pro capitalist position? They needed a Pinochet for Russia, and so you know they and see the um, Yeltsin wanted to pick someone like Chubias or one of his other kind of actually American trained economists, some of who had gone to the University of Chicago with me, 
But they said, no, we need a hard guy who looks like a Pinochet, who looks like a commander. Um, and they said, look, you know, that that subchecks ex-deputy mayor who's unemployed right now. Um, he, uh, you know, he was the he really was the uh, judo champ of Petersburg. That that wasn't he really won that. I mean, and he's hard. And unlike Yeltsin, he's a teetotaler, though. They had to soften that teetotal image in Russia, as you can imagine. Yeah. So they had pictures of him drinking champagne and vodka, but putting down the glass after a sip. You know, making the point, I'm not a drunk. Right. You know? And so they created this Putin, this tough guy. That would be that would be pro capitalist. He's that's the other thing. A lot of leftists, especially in England, do not understand that Putin is violently anti-communist. He's not trying to recreate the Soviet Union. I keep hearing that over and over again. He hated the Soviet Union, hated it. Now, yes, he was a KGB agent. And when he was a KGB agent, because he's not the brightest guy in the world, he did. He was a total apparatchik. He totally believed in the Soviet system. And when it was overthrown, he totally be, believed that it should be overthrown and never return. He's really trying to recreate uh, imperial czarist Russia. In fact, one of the things that he really despises Lenin and Stalin for, and he's talked about this, by the way, it's very important to, to read uh, Putin's stuff. If you get it in translation or get it translated, the reason he hated the communists is that um, they recognize Ukraine as a separate nation. Don't forget, it's a union of Soviet socialist republics is what it was. And the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic was a separate nation in Soviet terms. It was not Russia. And he thought that that was a you know, religious anathema. It was historical anathema. The idea that the Ukrainians are not Russian was outrageous to him. And the idea that the communists would support this idea of an independent Ukraine drove him crazy. Um, and that's one of the things he wants to correct before he leaves. He sees that as a historical error right. of, of the worst order. So you have to go back to his understanding that that uh, the great tragedy to him was when he talked about it was tragic to to the fall of the Soviet Union was tragic and its defenestration was tragic. But he was not looking for a return to communism. He's a, a violent capitalist. When I say violent, he, I mean violent. And so the, the oligarchs got their Russian Pinochet. But of course, that has its price. You know, when you deal with guys who are basically killers. So Berezovsky ended up dead face down in his bathroom. No one knows exactly why. I have a few. I would ask Mr. Putin what he was doing that day. <laughs> um, and, and, a lot, and then Hodorovsky, the other, the richest man in Russia, found himself uh, imprisoned in his, um, in all his assets, which he had stolen. Putin stole them back. At, uh, and actually, that was a good thing. It made him very popular. So now what does he do? He, he, he stole back the, Russia's oil for the people, which is good. Um, put Hodorovsky in jail, which is good despite uh, the West uh, screaming that Hodorovsky was a great and wonderful guy. Well, that's because he paid literally billions of dollars to create this image of himself. So Putin's done some actually good things for the people, but what he doesn't like and will never accept is democracy. And he'll never accept the independence of Ukraine. And so he cannot leave. He figures he can kill two 
birds with one stone, so to speak. A horrible image given what's going on, but um, which is to take back Ukraine and keep himself in power. He knows exactly what happens to autocrats who lose power. They end up dead, imprisoned, destroyed. Yeah. You know, they, they usually don't have happy retirements. Once you're an autocrat, you don't resign. You don't re- There's no such thing as a retirement for a dictator. Yeah. And so what's he going to do? To maintain his authority, he does this very popular move against Ukraine. And of course, one of the things he was pushed again, we go back to Patriarch Kirill, who's correctly saying our people are being killed in the Donbass. You know, I'm not going to say that the Ukrainians have been lovely on this. Forget NATO. The Ukrainians killed 14,000 Russian ethnics in the Donbass since 2014. Yeah. 14,000 dead. That ain't good. Okay. It was a slaughter. It was outrageous. And I'm not going to, you can't defend Ukraine on that. On the other hand, uh, you can't defend, say, well, okay, since they've slaughtered 14,000, we'll even it up with, you know, start out with 28,000 uh, Ukrainians dead this week. Now, that's that. Hopefully, that's not our solution yeah. in this world. But do understand the Russians really were being pushed. And Kirill, who is a real fascist, the, the patriarch, um, while he wanted to take back control in Kiev, he was correct in saying, our people are being killed. It's it it is ethnic cleansing in the Donbass by the Ukrainians, by the uh, the Ukrainians who are part of the uh, Kiev Patriarchate. So we do have to understand that that Russians were whipped up by these images of people being slaughtered in the uh, the Russian ethnics being slaughtered in the Donbass. Yeah. Now, you might say, and a lot of people keep saying, well, there is a solution there. There was a solution, which is to say, look, the Donbass, Crimea and the Donbass were never part of Ukraine, historically. In 1954, Khrushchev, who had just taken over from Stalin, he was in an internal fight with the prime minister of Russia. I hope you're taking notes here. Or you can go to gregpalace.com and read some of this yes, stuff. Yes, do it, do it. <laughs> but I don't want to throw too many you know, names and facts. It sounds like a blizzard of crap, but it's, it's important to know. Khrushchev was in a fight with Melenkov, the prime minister. Remember, Russia has a president and prime minister, and their powers shift back and forth. Um, so to build his own power and take away Melenkov's, he removed the Russian fleet from Melenkov's power into an allies ter- turf in Ukraine. So they moved Crimea into the Ukraine and of course the, uh, the Donbass uh, region. And that was only in 1954. This was never Ukraine. When, when was Ukraine Crimea, you know, um, uh, or Crimea part of Ukraine? This is ridiculous. So when Russia took back Crimea and the West was crying, the reason why there wasn't really serious sanctions is I think that there was a visceral understanding that Crimea is Russia. Also, the Russian fleet is even when uh, crime when Ukraine was allowed to declare its independence, uh, the Russian fleet was allowed to remain based at Sevastopol in Crimea. So obviously, giving Russia back to giving Russians back to Russia in Crimea and the Donbass is an obvious solution. Uh, we don't need you know these borders are all artificial anyway. Yeah. But of course. 
no Ukrainian politician can survive if they say we're going to give up any piece of our beloved land that we got only in 1954. Um, but that's, as you know, national, ethnic, religious pride um, has killed more people than uh, COVID. It, it must be crazy for you as an American seeing all this these these tiny little countries over in Europe with all this fucking ethnic and nationalist baggage that goes back hundreds of years and we still haven't figured it out yet. It must be crazy for you as an American looking over. Do, do you think it's fucking crazy or does it make sense? Yes. Well, Americans, well, Americans, you know, the way Americans deal with it is just by ignorance. We don't know the difference. There are all those people all over there. Let's stay away. And, um, you know, that's why, you know, just let them all kill each other. This is an American, very much the American majority attitude, just so you know. I have a very different attitude. I, I believe we have a moral obligation as humans. Yes. And as America guaranteed um, Ukraine's safety to take a stronger uh, position also, because we have to say we have to confront a murderous dictator. We really do. I, I'm not a pacifist. You know, I I. You know, I, I come from the I'm an old school lefty, which is um, I fight fascists. Love it. And and right now, um, Putin's a fascist and we have to fight him. But um, yeah, we as so in America, we have our own issues with ethnicity. You know, we you know, <laughs> we are on native land right. um, where I sit now and go surfing is was uh, Laguna Indian territory. Now it's just Laguna Beach. Um, and, um, uh, you know, and obviously a lot of the work I do is about uh, the suppression of black voters in America yes. and the black vote. Yeah. Now, we've dealt with a lot of that. I mean, we did have we did elect a black president. I mean, so there are a lot of America has expiated some of its sins. Uh, we just keep sliding back, um, you know, especially when Agent Orange was president. That was a that was, <laughs> Big step back, but you know, um, but yeah, so we don't understand. So Americans, as uh, it was Ambrose Bierce, one of a great journalists of two centuries ago, uh, who wrote that uh, the that um, uh, invasions are the way that Americans learn geography. Right, I love it. <laughs> until we go some, until the hundred first airborne is there, we don't know what it is. You know, I, I, you know, so we learned where places like Kabul and Saigon were just, you know, only after we invaded. Americans had no idea where these places were. They couldn't find them on the map. In fact, famously, I, I'll never forget when uh, uh, the uh, after this, the 9-11 attack and there was a meeting, uh, uh, there was an emergency cabinet meeting, a whole bunch of members of the cabinet uh, asked Condi Rice, well, where is this Afghanistan? That's fucking crazy. That's fucking crazy. I'm not kidding. So where is this Afghanistan? You know, and because the, they were going to send submarines. They said, well, it's landlocked can't send something what uh, yeah i'm not i can't make this stuff up. oh my god so american we're kind of almost proudly ignorant of the rest of the world um, wow what, what is america's interest in this particular conflict then is it just like because it, it it helps the propaganda narrative of framing putin as this big monster or is there something more tangible that they're interested in I don't I can't handle the phrenology of the American skull in this case right now, because um, the question is not why is America in conflict, but why wasn't America in conflict right. with Putin? Why were we sucking up to this monster okay. and, and playing games with? I mean, it was kind of, you know, back and forth. But, you know, remember, now we get to 
to the ultimate poison. You know, the only thing that's more than that's as poisonous religion is petroleum, is oil. And now we have to get into the politics of the damn oil because as you, well, obviously we're aware, Germany and the West decided to become, to basically get cheap oil out of Russia. And, um, but one of the things that could break the Russian economic back on this that I've written about is Venezuela. The number one, uh, the, the, the largest reserves on this planet are in Venezuela, not Saudi Arabia. If you go to the OPEC website, they list um, Venezuela as having the largest reserves. Wow. Venezuela produces practically today the number one oil nation on the planet exports virtually no oil, hmm. none. Now, it's capable of producing 3.2 million barrels a day, and which would replace all the oil from not only Nord Stream 2, but Nord Stream 1 which is what's keeping Putin in business. Like I say, his, his actual income has risen enormously since the invasion, yeah. enormously. That would not happen if, if the United States and Britain hadn't um, imposed, that is when I say United States and Britain, I mean, um, well, it was uh, uh, before, um, uh, before Johnson, but um, under Trump, we impose an absolute blockade embargo, a basic siege of that nation. They can't they can't sell their oil. They can't pump their oil because all the parts and all the equipment that you need has been um, has been denied them. Why? Why is that? But they can't get medicine. They can't get food. This was OK. There's a lot of reasons. I, I think it goes, you know, two things. Number one, let's go to let's go to Britain. Let's talk about. Britain. I knew we were going to be blamed for something. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, um, British Petroleum wanted a piece of the action in Venezuela. France Total decided to get out because they didn't want to pay the higher taxes or turn over a piece of their property to the Venezuelan government. And, you know, it, it's interesting. We take Putin's oil, even though he stole all that oil. Well, I'm glad he did for the for the people. But anyway, so British Petroleum wanted the Total. Um, concession in Venezuela. And um, Maduro, the current president, who was elected, whether we like him or not, I know Maduro personally, and I don't think he's capable of handling this job, but that's my opinion. People did vote for him because the alternatives were ridiculous. And um, so when British Petroleum was turned down, suddenly Venezuela became a horrible dictatorship that the British government could not support. <laughs> and not only that, they so the British government recognized, as did the U.S. government, as did Donald Trump, recognized a guy named Juan Guaido as the president. Now, Juan Guaido wasn't even in Venezuela. He was in Washington where he lives. He speaks English. He's a white guy, rich white guy, works for a right-wing think tank in Washington, D.C. And he didn't even, it's not like he was cheated out of his presidential run. He never ran for president. And he was recognized by Britain and the U.S. and Germany He's recognized today as the president of Venezuela. What the fuck? And they use that, right? I kid you not. And they use that as an excuse. Are you ready for this? Hugo Chavez was considered completely nutty and insane when he demanded that the gold bars in, in Fort Knox in the United States, that Venezuela's gold bars, most nations hold their gold in the United States, 
he want he had the gold move physically out of the U.S. to Venezuela. And they said, well, that's crazy. Well, guess what? They left ten billion dollars worth of gold in Britain, in your in the Bank of England, the physical bars of gold, ten billion worth. The British government has seized that ten billion and technically given it to this whack Guaido. He's in charge of that ten billion. So the people of Venezuela cannot get the money to keep themselves alive because it was seized by the British government. Supposedly, this is because we want to support the British government and the American government and Donald Trump. And now Biden, I don't know why Biden has accepted this Trump insanity. But what happened was, is that Biden um, and Trump and the rest, they say, well, we can't, uh, we, we can't, uh, uh, we have to support democracy in Venezuela. Even though Maduro is elected, he is elected. I've been down there. Jimmy Carter, who also studies elections and hates the Maduro government, but does say he was elected. Okay, Uh, I was down there in the elections. And um, instead, they say, no, we we will only take oil from democracies like Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, Russia, (laughs) Kazakhstan. (laughs) I've been in Kazakhstan. Uh, That wasn't too pleasant an experience. Uh, it is certainly edifying, but you know, you gotta be a little careful as a journalist there when you're talking, oh, I, I got thrown out because, because, um, I asked the, um, the heir to, uh, the daughter of the, uh, of the beloved president, Nazarbayev. Uh, I asked him about Nazarbayev accepting $160 million bribe from mobile oil from Exxon mobile. And, um, uh, so I was uh, escorted out of the nation. Which is, which is better than locals? Because one local journalist brought up that matter, and he committed suicide. Oh shit! He shot himself. In, he shot himself in the head twice. <laughs> That's what happened. So I got out. But this is where you're getting your oil from, my friend. Yeah, yeah. This is British Petroleum. In fact, British Petroleum. British Petroleum. I have the papers and the insiders. That's a British Petroleum. Paid a fifty million dollar bribe in Kazakhstan to get control of of uh, one of the oil fields there. British Petroleum had sent a bill for the bribe to their partner, a guy named Jack Grinberg, an American oil man who is uh, the partner. He used to be uh, he was the oil chief um, at the Helsinki uh, CIA station. So when the wall fell, you know he he went and grabbed. Uh, Decided better grab the Caspian Sea and cut a deal with British Petroleum where they'd be partners. So, of course, they share money, you know, the gain, and they also share the expenses. And one of the expenses was a bribe to the president. <laughs> <laughs> and so he got his he got a, an invoice for a bribe, which he showed to me, which, by the way, um, I got and gave to showed to Channel 4. But they were too uh, nervous about putting it on the air. Um, what can I tell you? I was working, I was doing a piece for dispatches and they were kind of nervous, but you um, have got to write a memoir. I, I would buy that in a heartbeat. I, well, soon. that's why I did. I did. I did write a memoir about a kind of memoir about everything from Chicago to Kazakhstan in uh, channel four, everything um, in this, in a book, Vulture's Picnic, which I was telling you before oh, we uh, went that's, live. It, that's, that's sort of autobiographical stuff as well, right? In, in yeah. So the Vulture's Picnic is autobiographical. How, for example, I met my wife who I thought was, um, <laughs> 
sent uh, to assassinate me and I almost <laughs> killed her first. You kid me not. <laughs> so, you know, it's a good. That's uh, a fun book because rather than just my investigations, I talk about the whole uh, everything that goes around bef- uh, in life around it, too. But uh, in so but we actually have. So you're talking about massive bribery by British Petroleum. Now, why? I guess uh, Maduro is unbribable, right? So he wouldn't give British Petroleum the total concession. And therefore, British, uh, the British government, and as the American government, and now, and Exxon was really, really upset with, um, with the uh, Venezuelan government because the Venezuelan government demanded that um, that a greater portion of the company of the reserves be turned over back to the Venezuelan people. Now, understand Saudi Arabia took 100% of the reserves, but they cut a deal with the oil companies in the end. And I should say, I knew Hugo Chavez because I, I was assigned to cover Hugo Chavez uh, for Newsnight, BBC, and I got to know him very well. Wow. A brilliant, brilliant guy. And I will say that um, he would have never done this. He would have cut the deal with British Petroleum because he knows that the Venezuelans can't drink their oil and that it's just a, you know, it's a nasty business. And, you know, and if British Petroleum wants the oil, well, then, yeah, just dicker with them. Exxon did not like the terms and the added taxes on the oil. Uh, ironically, they're willing to work with Putin, who took away a lot of their oil and, and taxed them and actually even with with uh, threaten um, the, the current uh, chief, uh, American chief of BP's operation um, was uh, Putin tried to have him arrested. So, you know, but they'll work with, with people as long as you don't t- touch their profits. So I think Chavez would have cut a deal with uh, the British government, British Petroleum. Uh, but Maduro is, uh, he likes to out Chavez Chavez. He's not bright enough to understand that how the world works. You may be president, but you ain't Exxon. You may be president, you may be prime minister, but you ain't British Petroleum. Right. That's the real power. Now, how does this go back to what's happening in Ukraine? If so, interestingly, one of the most evil, and I don't use that word, you know, uh, willy nilly, the most evil oil company on the planet is Chevron Corporation. And they stayed in Venezuela and they have been begging Biden. To let them pump 800,000 barrels a day of oil. Now you have to understand, 800,000 barrels a day, you're getting, that's pretty much Nord Stream 1. You can replace Russia's oil. Um, And um, so, but the Biden administration, the right wing in America went completely berserk. And so um, Biden is uh, backing off on the Chevron, because Chevron wants to reactivate its fields. It, it can't it can't sell its oil. It's barred by the U.S. government from selling uh, Venezuelan oil. So, you know, you, there's strange bedfellows here, but Chevron doesn't care about countering Putin. They just say, hey, we've got, you know, 800. Think about it this way. Eight hundred thousand barrels a day. OK, so you got at a hundred bucks a barrel. You're at eighty million dollars a day, right? So um, um, that's not bad. Excuse me, yeah, eighty million dollars a day. That's not so bad. Um, but anyway, um, so that could also take a bite out of Putin. But unfortunately, the British government, the American government, would rather 
still take oil from Putin than allow Venezuela to survive. Oh, man, it's so incredibly sad, isn't it? I mean, on the streets, the propaganda is working really well. Um, I mean, there's this huge uh, global public outpouring in support of the, uh, the Ukrainian people, which, of course, there should be, you know. Should be, yeah. um, but unfortunately, beneath all that is the politics as usual, which is just more hot air and bullshit because Putin is profiting from this. And I'm sure... The Western powers are aware of that. And as you've just mentioned, you know, we, we, that doesn't need to be the case where we could actually get our oil elsewhere, um, but we're refusing to do so. Yeah, I mean, he's literally making war bonus. And you have to understand, I mean, it, all the sanctions, all the BS, yeah, it, it's, uh, there will be effects on most people. But, but, you know, right now, Putin's gone from broke to rolling in dough. There, you know, the price of oil just a year ago was was just, uh, you know, in the swamps. This has been a, a godsend for Putin economically. And of course, again, it, it builds his budget. You know, everyone talks about how Putin is personally very wealthy. That's just because if you're in Russia, if you're going to face down oligarchs, you got to be you got to be the richest guy. Right. Um, but that's he doesn't intend to to spend that money. His his that's just a, a weapon. So, but unless we unleash the oil, and I know that we also have some problems with, frankly, some, you know, the greenies who just think, well, uh, you know, I heard uh, one of our, he's a great environmentalist, you know, he's like the, the number one guy on the issue of global warming is a guy, Bill McKibben. He says, don't take Venezuelan oil. It's dirty. It's filthy. We got to get off oil. Well, this is, I'm just talking about next three months, we're not going to have wind powered cars. Yeah. You know, like we're not talking, you know, as long as we're on oil, we should be. Yeah. Yes. Let's put it this way. Do you want Putin's oil or do you want Maduro's oil? Exactly. And I don't think there should be a question about that. And um, and so we have it's not about let's get oil from Venezuela and just, you know, keep sucking oil. I agree. In fact, one of the reasons I've, I've said we have to get off oil is not because the planet will fry or because, you know, the remember the old peak oil stuff that we're running out of it. The problem is that is that guys like Putin and and uh, MBS and Saudi Arabia monsters have us by the testicles. Yeah, they have us by the light bulbs and we got to stop it. That's why that's why we need an alternative. It's not about I mean, yeah, global warming. I, I'm not going to uh, blow it off, but we now have to deal with the fact that the oil has to come from somewhere. Right. So there you've got a bunch, you know, so, you know, that's the wide story. It goes from religion to oil to the history of the Kievan Rus Empire of 867 AD. Uh, Jesus. You know, uh, well, religion and oil are the usual culprits, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it always, oil will always get in there um, at the, uh, you know, the devil's excrement. <laughs> it seems so senseless to the likes of you and I, you know, um, hearing your overview there, you know, and how a lot of these things could be so simply rectified. And it makes me wonder sometimes, is this literally just the stupidity of, you know, a super rich 1% who've got all the power and all the wealth um, who just want to keep more of it for themselves? Or is there actually something more sinister going on? Is there, is there actually like a, an agenda or something happening here? Now, I think that the agenda is pretty clear. You know, I mean, like, I mean, by the way, for example, when, when the oligarchs 
with, by the way, U.S. support. I want to remind people that Bill Clinton was really hot on the idea of of a of replacing Yeltsin with another Pinochet. They were happy. The Americans were happy with this. So it was the British government. They didn't want that. They would do anything. They helped. In fact, they helped fix the election so the communists wouldn't win and take uh, power again. Right. Um, so, you know, we you know, the we in the West put Putin in as much as the oligarchs. I mean, obviously, they had the the, the juice and the power to really do it. But if if the U.S. stepped in and Britain stepped in and said, no, that's not how you play this game anymore. We now have this thing, democracy, that you're supposed to be, you know, you got to give that one a try. No, no, no. We didn't talk about you got to have democracy. It's like, holy shit, they're going to reverse the so-called reforms, which meant the the two fisted grab of everything that wasn't nailed down in Russia. So that was open and so open that the number one broadcaster, like the Jeremy Paxman of uh, of Russia, actually was sent by the oligarchs to meet with Putin, excuse me, to meet with Pinochet, the uh, dictator in Chile, when he was under arrest for murder. Remember, he was uh, seized, which is why dictators should never retire. He learned the hard way. You know, remember, he was seized and charged, and um, and it was the British government that actually sent him back to Chile for Jeez. trial for murder. And the wow. Russians put him on national TV while he's under indictment for murder, mass murder. Put him on national TV in Russia to say, this is the man you need. And he described, this is who you have to have. So this was quite open. The U.S. was quite open and we're not going to allow a uh, another communist government in Russia. So, you know, now we re- reap the whirlwind. You know, I mean, I can't say that, you know, like all these people have this idea that these oligarchs are and, and the ruling class in America and Britain are so brilliant that they think way down the line, they think decades. No, they don't. They're not that. They don't they don't see long term consequences. Where they close their eyes to him. I haven't seen that type of kind of forethought or brilliance. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so there's no um, there's no kind of Illuminati esque conspiratorial agenda happening at the top of the pyramid. It is literally just short sighted money and power interest. Well, it is an evil conspiracy, but it's not brilliant and it's not that hidden. Like I say, they were very open about we want we want the Pinoch- uh, Pinochet for Russia, and here's this judo champ which we can put in power. Yeah. He, he looks the part, he, he sounds the part, he can do the part. And that's happened so many times, doesn't it? I mean, it happened in Afghanistan, it happened in Iraq, it's happened in Latin America. And every time they create one of these Frankensteins, it always comes back to bite them in the ass. Well, you know, we saw that, yeah, we saw that with Saddam Hussein. We put him in yep. power. You know, I, I was once saying, you know, when I said the way to, uh, I once wrote that the way uh, to um, stop these Frankensteins is to shut down the Frankenstein factory. You know, like we're creating these Frankensteins. And then we're surprised when they turn around, you know, just like Berezovsky ended up face down dead, right? Uh, so you create the monster and then you're shocked when the monster turns on you. You know, and especially in Russia where Putin understood that the guys who put him in power, um, he also, um, um, you know, arrested and exiled and destroyed the other oligarch that put him in power, Guzinski, who was the media uh, mogul in Russia. And he, then he turned around, you know, 
uh, Gazinski and Berezovsky were the two main guys that put him in office. And he turned around and destroyed them, killed one, as far as I could tell. And uh, certainly we, we know very well he's very public about destroying Gazinski and sending him into exile. So, yeah, so we create these. So that's why they, to say that these guys have uh, that they have these brilliant grand plans. I don't know. When I was in the Chicago Boys, I didn't see a lot of brilliance. I just saw fucking two-fisted greed. Understand that these so-called economists I worked with were stealing it. The stealing the we're stealing Chile. You know when they quote privatized the electric system, for example. I was down there in, in Santiago. When they privatized the electric system. It basically went to one of the guys in my class, one of my economists I was studying. He set up the whole system for privatizing it, but made sure that everyone was scared to bid on it. And he got he ended up owning. uh, So this uh, this uh, Ph.D. ended up owning the entire electric system of uh, of Chile and then selling it off for, you know, for a a big wad of. uh, of easy squeezy to uh, the Spanish uh, company, uh, I think it was Repsol. Anyway, whatever the um, uh, so you see this kind of smash and grab from these people, but you see it. I saw it in Britain. One of the reasons I started working for the Guardian is that because I was an economist, I was actually, believe it or not, lecturing at the both London School of Economics and Cambridge Department of Applied Economics, and. Um, so, you know, so I have this other kind of life, you know, it's kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark. But I, <laughs> You've got the hat as well, man. I've even got the hat, right. Uh, <laughs> and um, it's vital, the hat. Uh, and, and, you know, so, um, you know, I, I saw the smash and grab in Britain with the, with the seizure of the electric system when Thatcher privatized uh, electricity, your electric grid. And I saw, you know, just this monstrous grab. And then these American corporations came in. For example, a, a company, Southern Company, was the first American. So the Americans, if you remember for a while, had complete control of your electric system. And I'd been investigating these people for the, uh, that was the other thing. Before I was an investigative journalist, I was a, an investigator in the U.S. as well as an academic. But I was mainly an investigator for the Justice Department and others. And I said, you know, this company that's buying this uh, Southwest Electric in around Bristol from the U.S., you do understand that they are the mafia, that they are this is they are a criminal enterprise. They are racketeers that I've been investigating and, and you know, indicting for years. These are criminals that are taking over your electric system in Britain. And it was like one criminal group after another taking over your electric system. But, you know, there was such an they sold this as, you know, this is the, you know, the, the great heart. The Americans really know how to do private enterprise and they're entrepreneurs yeah, and all yeah. they're not entrepreneurs. They're, they're killers. In fact, one of the stories I did was um, uh, one of the first big stories I did for The Guardian is I went undercover uh, to investigate uh, what what was called lobby gate or cash for access where Blair's government right. was basically yeah. failed. It was like yeah. a, it was like a. It was like a flea market for favors. Yes, <laughs> and I, I go remember. in there and I'm yeah. recording. I, so I set up a I set up a fake consulting company, <laughs> and I <laughs> the Guardian couldn't believe this stuff. I had a big. Um, I got this really expensive suite at the Tower Hotel, you know, which is very gauche for, you know, where American businessmen go and, and uh, you know, wind and dine these people to get the inside information. I'm, and I'm wearing a wire, right? <laughs> and which is not so easy at the time. 
Um, we didn't have the electronics we have now. And uh, so I got these guys saying, basically telling me and actually sending me documents. I said, I want, so, but I, one of the things is I said, I was working for Enron corporation, which at that time was not very well known by the public, but politicians knew them as, as you could, if you helped out Enron, you got taken care of big time and you could buy your government for pennies. I remember one of my, uh, one of the consultants who helped me set this up, who helped me, you know, cause it was a quite elaborate front, just so, you know, really elaborate. And um, one of them said, we were invited into 10 Downing Street and uh, to the policy. Unit. And we, that's when we pulled the plug on it and went public because we were, I was, we were afraid of getting arrested. You know, like it could go wrong, you know. Um, and uh, but he said, you know, we could buy a submarine <laughs> from the British government. I mean, for nothing. You know, uh, it was just it was madness. So, yes, Putin's corrupt. But, you know, they're all fucking corrupt. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and look at look at the look at short fingered. Look at the Clinton crime wave. <laughs> and oh, just, God, that litany of crimes is like a fucking Dead Sea Scroll. Well, and that's the problem. I mean, they were playing games. And, and again, they play games with people like Putin. And don't forget, British petroleum got itself deep into Russia. Why do you think Nord Stream 1 is there and they're pushing Nord Stream 2? Whose oil was that? That British Petroleum on Sakhalin Island and, and that whole area, um, you know, who's pumping that oil? It was Exxon. It was British Petroleum. It's, you know, it's, you know, we, yes, there are the Russian companies like Yukos, but they didn't have the, the chops or the technology to do this kind of deep drilling that you need to do these days. And so when we're talking about sanction, the reluctance to sanction Russia and oil, it was it started out really as a reluctance. Understand, we're talking about sanctioning British petroleum. Mm. Don't forget that. Yeah. Who's pumping that oil? We say it's Putin's oil. And I'm sure Putin thinks of it as his oil. But British petroleum was pretty clear. It was their oil. They were going to, you know, so you're paying for, quote, Russian oil. But it's really, it's going to British petroleum. And it's going to Exxon. And now they're, they're stuck because they got to pull out. You know, they've had to, you know, they've been forced now to leave as as things got too bad. But there's still, it's just unbelievable. And remember, British Petroleum says they are leaving, but they haven't left. They haven't shut down the fields. They haven't said, that's it, we're out. They said, we will sell our share <laughs> in a responsible manner. So they got to still get, they want their money. Oh, you know, they God. want their money. And they, they don't care how many dead bodies there are in Kharkiv. And by the way, I should mention, and this is, you know, because that's why I'm, I'm very emotional about this too, because I have two Russian, well, I have two Ukrainians on my staff. The Palace Investigative Fund is a fairly wide organization. I'm just the hat on camera. You know, I don't think we, we can't do these types of investigations, just some, you know, me and my sidekick, now my wife. Um, but, uh, you know, we have a team. And one of our guys is in Kharkiv right now. We haven't heard from him in a week. We're oh, very shit. concerned. Shit, I bet. He's yeah. Ukrainian. He went, you know, he's in a basement. He, we get these messages. Uh, I've got some internet in this basement, you know, and I just, you know, uh, it's pretty grim. Another one of our, of our people um, got out uh, and is in Leipzig now. But, um, but the, you know, it's brutal. And so why isn't British Petroleum shutting down? Why are they saying we will leave? What do you mean you will leave? What are you waiting for? You know what they're doing? 
I think I know what they're doing. Now, now I'm speculating, which I probably shouldn't do. I think that they're stalling for a peace, you know, waiting for the peace agreement, Wait, waiting for. And then part of the peace agreement, of course, unless Putin's crazy, he's going to say part of the deal is. British Petroleum stays. We need them operating that field, the Sakhalin fields. We need Exxon operating these fields. We can't, you know, no, no, no. So I think that they're keeping it going because they figure, you know, they're open, you know, 60 days from now. Biden the time, yeah. You know, while they're burying the bodies, they'll cut the deal and that'll be that. They're not leaving forever, you know. Um, So, you know, it's... (sighs) So, like I say, I don't know if it's it's not they, there's not a big Illuminati deal here, and they do get together in rooms, but it's not all that brilliant. I mean, like I say, Davos when they agreed to find the Russian Pinochet, the militaristic pro-capitalist um, um, dictator for Russia to take Yeltsin's place. I mean, they they called it the Davos Pact, and they had their private meeting, but they've talked about it very publicly. And then later they created something called the Succession Pact. Uh, but they were very public about these. You know, they, they're not all that hidden about what they're up to. You know, British Petroleum is not issuing press releases saying, well, we have we're dragging our feet about leaving Russia to wait for a yeah, deal yeah. so we can just go back in. Uh, obviously, they don't issue that type of press release. No. But there's nothing, there's nothing all that weirdly hidden. But I want people to get away from like the NATO stuff. And you know what it is? Because that's old Cold War thinking. Get rid The Cold War really is over. Forget the Cold War. And, um, you know, so and this idea that, you know, because Putin loves that idea. OK, yeah, we're threatened by the West. And the West is, you know, um, yeah, we're we got to stand up tough as a unit. We're unified, whatever that fuck that means. We're not unified at all. And, you know, and and I will say I know that a lot of the left is not in love with Boris. I've known Boris. For, and but, you know, I kind of agree with him that thank God he sent uh, some lethal weaponry instead of the slingshots that uh, the rest of NATO was. But the Germans sent helmets. Thanks a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Besides, would you want to, if you were a Ukrainian, would you want to be buried in a Russian helmet? Uh, I mean, a a German helmet? No. Uh, Okay, there you go. Oh, Greg, you are literally blowing my mind right now, man. I'm loving it. I mean, this challenges so many narratives that I've been receiving in the news and the alternative media and also, you know, my own interpretation of things. I mean, you know, I was interpreting this through my own lens in the traditional lefty way of this is a tussle between, you know, the two major powers and, you know, Western imperialism and all that sort of stuff. Good automatic reaction. I mean, (laughs) it's always a good place to start. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, you start out with the idea that that your government is lying to you, and that yes. you know, and that our, my government is lying to me, and that's that's a good assumption to start with. No matter you know that that you always have to start there because they do lie; they're still lying. Uh, and like you just heard the story of Venezuela, it's, it's horrible. And and you know, I laugh about it and stuff, but you go to it, it's it's horrible, it's tragic. I mean, we are starving people. Yeah. For what? Yeah. Oh, to support, quote, democracy, to tell them that they got it. And you have to understand, and, and I'm going sideways, though, you know, there's always race and ethnicity and all these things, too, on top of everything else. As I said, with religion, that compounds it. But the, um, um, you know, Venezuela has been ruled by white guys for 400 years. Hugo Chavez was the first black Indian mestizo president. and um, and 
in an overwhelmingly mestizo nation. And they ain't going back to being ruled by a white elite. And that's what much of this is about. It is, it's still, you know, in a, there's ethnicity, but in a way it's class war because we use ethnicity to sift people into different economic categories. Right. And um, so, you know, there's class, there's ethnicity, there's religion, there's always oil. So, <laughs> are we um, are we witnessing the end of the Western global dominance? Uh, you know, is is this the last dying hurrah of a desperate dying empire, or or is that bullshit? Well, I remember Bush saying, "Do not fight." You know, he gave his speech announcing our invasion. Didn't, you know, he told the Iraqis, "Do not fight for a dying regime. It's not worth your life." And that's a good phrase to use pretty universally right now. No, I don't think the, the West is collapsing. I think that China and just like Russia are Westernizing. Right. And they're, they're joining the big grab. Mm. When I see uh, Chairman Xi, I see Trump, Putin. Um, you know, I see the whole gangster, gangster crowd. Um, you know, I see them. You know, even look at the way they dress. And it's not a small thing. They are, they are, we're not, the West isn't losing. The West, the West is winning. That is, if you consider the West, Pinochet, Putin. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, so I don't think that the West is dying. I think that, that the kind of greed poison is uh, becoming quite universal. That makes a lot of sense. I'd never thought of it that way. Yeah, I mean, we, we talk about, you know, the rise of China and the rise of the East and stuff like that, and it's going to be a whole new era. But but no, what they're doing is they're um, they're capitalizing, if, essentially, and westernizing. Yeah, they're becoming, they're, they're becoming, you know, just like with Putin, try to turn Russia more West than West. That is um, the privatizations, which is smash and grab, what they call shares for options. You have to understand that, the average age of a Russian male was higher than in the U.S., higher than in the U.S. before the fall of the wall. Then, under, under Yeltsin and shock therapy and hypercapitalism, the average life expectancy of a Russian male dropped to 57 years. So you're going from 76 years to 57 years. So if the average age is dropping by 20 years, you have to understand people are dying. They were starving to death. They had no medical care. And, and um, you know, this was and that was to make them to westernize them. Then Putin came in and um, as far as they were concerned, saved them. But the way he saved them, basically, is that he stole back a big hunk of the oil and put Khodorovsky, one of the thieves in prison, which was good. And then the price of oil rose so that's what gave putin power and then plus he killed a bunch of muslims just to you know give a little patriotic juice to the whole thing um so that doesn't strike me that the west is losing it looks like the western methods is winning yeah we're doing quite well oh shit <laughs> so, i mean we are we are we created this russia wow. we, we put putin in office we created this insane russia we created a new pinochet in russia just like we created the just like kissinger you know i remember getting when i was at the guardian getting um um 
speaking to the ambassador to uh, the U.S. ambassador to Chile, who was there during the coup, before and during the coup. And he tried to stop it because he couldn't believe that America would do this. And we went to he told him about going to Henry Kissinger. And he said, what kind of madman would try to overthrow this elected government in Chile? And Kissinger takes him over and opens the Oval Office door, and there's Nixon sitting there. Oh, right? That's the madman. But so is Kissinger. Kissinger, you know, we have the cables, uh, which are now in the National National uh, Security Archives, which are public in the U.S., which, you know, um, there should be more public in Britain. Um, but we can, Americans can actually read the cables from Henry Kissinger saying, you know, the, the weapons are on the way. Literally, as I say, the weapons are on the way. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> the plan goes ahead. You know, it's like, so, you know, when you say, are they secret? I don't know. I'm reading no, their cable. That's crazy. It's like, uh, yeah, there's a lot of crazy stuff. You know, I went undercover. I get like, you know, Blair's people and all these people on, on tape and stuff. But you know what? It's, it's not that difficult to find. And like I say, the dangerous thing is that they're actually not that good at this. And that's how we end up with dead bodies all is there some hope then to be derived from the fact that this is actually, rather than being a global conspiracy um, of power all working together as one unstoppable force, that this is actually much more like the Wizard of Oz, where it's behind the curtain, it is actually lots of little factions all wrestling amongst themselves, and we stand far more chance of bringing them down than we thought we did. Well, if they weren't, uh, you know, if, if they really had it all together, why would they have to meet in Davos? Right. <laughs> like, it's kind of like every year, like, what went wrong? <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, um, so... Can we get hope from that? Does that make them more fallible? Um, I, I don't know how much hope there is, but I do see a huge part of the population, whether it's Britain, America, Ukraine, Russia, there are people who just think that we got to... that. Murder and mayhem for profit uh, are just uh, are not a good idea. I know it's a, it's a silly thing, but I think that the world's reaction to Ukraine, even you know, we can go how it happened, whatever, it doesn't matter. But the fact that there is a moral revulsion to the invasion, I think, is hopeful. Mm. The fact that Putin has to lie is hopeful. If he told the truth to his people. He'd be out of power. And it's interesting, you know, Daniel, I spoke, once spoke to Daniel Ellsberg, the guy that released the Pentagon Papers in the U.S. Um, and, you know, revealing the truth about the war in Vietnam, that America was getting its ass kicked and we're just killing a bunch of people and can't possibly win. And he said, you know, the, the good thing about the American people is that you have to lie to them. Right. And he said... The bad thing is that it's easy to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the world is gullible. You know, it's like, uh, so that's the problem. But I think that the fact that most, you know, people, re that there's revulsion. And I see it in America. I'm doing stories right now. Uh, one of my, my main investigative work in past, about half of my time, past 20 years, has been on what we politely in America called vote suppression. And what yes. that means is fucking black people out of their votes. Yeah, you talked a lot about that in Armed Madhouse, didn't you? Yeah, so that's, you know, that's crucial. So we, when you talk about it, you know, we haven't dealt with our own ethnic issues here to some extent, but I have to tell you, they have to lie to people. I have to do these reports because Americans are no longer, I mean, back 60 years ago, 70 years ago, 
You could proudly say, I'm a segregationist. I don't want black people, and they wouldn't use the term black, to vote. Don't let them vote. I will make sure if you elect me and I'll make sure that no black guy ever gets to vote. You could say that. And that's changed. And so now you have to lie to people and say, oh, yeah, we have a wonderful democracy. Everyone gets to vote. Just don't try it. In fact, I just uh, if you go to my website, the gregpalace.com, you'll see um, you'll see some of the uh, uh, stories and stuff like when I was down in, you know, I keep going down in Georgia, which is a really important politically uh, swing state in America. And, um, you know, I was at the polling station when Martin Luther King's 92 year old cousin was thrown out, a black woman, of course, King's cousin, and they wouldn't let her vote. And her granddaughter was absolutely hysterical in tears. And they don't no longer say you can't vote because you're black. They say, oh, you can't vote because you don't live in Georgia anymore. Well, yeah. Martin Luther King doesn't. She lives down the street. I was in her house. On the other hand, what's hopeful, but, but that's hopeful. I mean, I know it sounds weird to say that's hopeful, but it's hopeful because when when I filmed this woman being thrown out of the polling station, it went viral in America. People yeah. were disgusted by it. Now, did it change policy? No, but it led to at least a big discussion about changing policy. And I think that over time, you know, like King said, the arc of history bends towards justice. But people forget the second part of his statement. It doesn't bend itself. You got to do something. He said the enemy of justice is not injustice. The enemy of justice is complacency. Mm. So if there's any hope, it's that. Like I say, just the revulsion against the invasion, whatever you think it's cause or solutions or anything else, I think is a hopeful sign. So how do we deal with the gullibility factor then, that the fact that we're so easily propagandized to, to, to stay you know, confused or apathetic or you know, divided? How do we get past that, that situation? Wow. Um, I guess my solution, because I've decided on journalism, and I switched to journalism, I said, because people from just being an investigator and academic, because I realized people had to know what's going on. So the only way to deal with ignorance is information. And that's not always easy to get out. It's very difficult to get out. But um, I somehow believe if people know what's going on, they won't they won't let it stay. And I've seen that. I've seen I've seen there has been progress. I mean, if you look at the arc of history, there tends to be some type of progress for the people. And I don't know. I, and it's, it's almost miraculous. But, you know, there was a great uh, folk singer in America, Malvino Reynolds, talks about God bless the grass. It's like the, the truth. You know, the grass comes up through the cracks in the sidewalk, no matter what you do. And the truth comes up. Yeah, I, I like that. to think so. it's the only way it's the only way I can personally survive. If I didn't believe that, I would just, well, I just surf all day. <laughs> that, that doesn't sound like a bad alternative, actually, Greg. <laughs> yeah, it does sound honest. very attractive. Yeah. Well, Greg, how are you doing for time? Because we've run over time here now. And, you know, yeah, I know- well, I think I've got to, I've got to, um, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to take off because I, I've, Got to get a hold of. Uh, I'm working on stories. You go and surfing. That's and, fine. You don't have to. You don't have to. You know. And, that's fine. And, uh, well, no. I'm also gonna. Yeah, I'm gonna hit the waves one more time. But I, I, today is Miss um, uh, uh, Bad Penny's birthday. Oh, okay. 
And so I am going to... Uh... Right, you better get off work, man. No, that's totally cool. Um, well, happy birthday to Miss Bad Penny. And Greg, yeah, thank you so, so much for coming in off the, uh, off the surf today in the glorious Miami sunshine to blow my mind and that of the listeners. This has been absolutely incredible for me. And please send me the links because we'll get it out there also. I think this was good because you gave me the room to tell full stories, even if it was meandered all over the fucking place. <laughs> well, Matt, I've got like, I've got like another 12 questions I was going to ask you. So we'll, we'll hopefully we can get you on again sometime, you know, and uh, pick up where we left off. But man, you've given us tons yeah. to go through there and we'll be making notes. And thank you so, so much. You're very welcome. Bye. Hey, enjoy your day. Thank you, Greg. Speak to you soon. Holy shit. What did you think of that? My mind is absolutely blasted now. I need to go and have a little Jack Daniels myself just to uh, fucking defrazzle. Uh, right before I pressed record, um, Greg said, hang on, I'm just going to go get some Jack Daniels and, uh, and some water, which was the um, inspirational juice that he was talking about. <laughs> so I think I'm going to go and copy him, although I don't have the glorious Miami sunshine raining down from behind me like he did. <laughs> But I hope you enjoyed that one, guys. And um, please go and check out Greg's website at gregpalast.com. That's G-R-E-G-P-A-L-A-S-T.com. Follow him on Twitter and Facebook. He's constantly putting stuff out there. On his website, there's a shit ton of essays and articles and links and videos and interviews and information, essential stuff. And as you can hear, he's a, he's a real rock and roll cool guy. So, you know, it's easy to kind of uh, digest as well when it comes from Greg because it comes straight from the source. He's an investigative journalist. He's actually out there doing this stuff, oftentimes undercover. So you're getting the real information from the source and he delivers it in a really accessible way. So I'm a massive fan. And if you haven't checked out any of his books, I've read Armed Madhouse and The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. Check out those two books. And I'm definitely going to go and get uh, The Vulture's Picnic that he mentioned in the interview there as well. I uh, hope you guys do the same. You will not regret it. Um, so I'm going to go now and defrazzle with a little Jack Daniels. Hope you guys have an awesome week. And I'll catch up with you guys next week for another episode. Love you loads.